the thing that has to come to mind is something that you probably, you say it every Shabbos, and you think on a very localized level. And those who know Rabbi Cooper and his unbelievable accomplishments and activities, when they say this, they should be consider- thinking about him. Kol misha oskim so when you say person involved in the Tzorchet Sibur, you know, you maybe you think about, you know, the guy who's Torinut for lunch, maybe the Gabai, Tzorchet Sibur Be'emuna. The Tzibur that Rabbi Cooper is serving Be'emuna is Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people. And over the years and years and years, indefatigably, he has gone to literally all ends of the of the earth to help the Jewish people in every way that they need help, and many times in ways that they don't even know that they need help. Last time he was here, um, I think he was able to reveal certain secret things that he was involved in, um, opening up the Abraham Accords, and he was opening the door to hidden things. I think on this trip there's nothing hidden anymore. He got it all on the table. We all know about it. The things that he's doing now are pretty well publicized in contrast to a year or two ago when they weren't publicized. Um, And again, just a person who is only thinking, how can I help Klal Yisrael? And in that sense, you guys should be a little motivated, a little inspired to take just a little piece of that and in some way Try to replicate your service to Klal Yisrael in even the smallest way that literally, immeasurably, Rabbi Cooper has served Klal Yisrael and continues to serve Klal Yisrael. And we're very honored to have him share with us some very informative uh, ideas that relate to our Holocaust program. Thank you, Clara Rogers, Rabbi Min, Rosh Yeshiva, friends from Denver. And, um, you know, I think it's a big achrayut when you uh, stand before an Aaron Kodesh and you're with uh, students who could be learning direct, directly from the text of Torah if you're taking an hour of your time. Try to make it worth your while. I, in your uh, very lovely introduction... Uh, you mentioned the Chomishal Skim Bitzarchetzi Bor Be'emuna. So, um, 50 years ago, it's hard to believe, but 50 years ago I spent a month in what was then the Soviet Union. Uh, 1972, I, I see at least a few people who were alive back then. We were in the minority. One of the most difficult years for three million Jews in the Soviet Union who were trapped. Back then, we had absolutely no guarantees, very little hope that the the Jewish people there would somehow be able to get out or to thrive as Jews in in that uh, terrible system. So uh, I was in six cities together with a friend of mine uh, over uh, from Shabbat Shuva through the end of Sukkot. I would say probably with the in addition to studying here in Israel, that month uh, did a lot to give a context to the future of my life. So I didn't know Russian. And every place you went back then, you were followed. 
by the KGB, by the secret police. And worse, when you came into a shul, you know, today when you go to a shul anywhere, Hong Kong, Dubai, anywhere, you're home. You have your passport. It's not as a sitter. Back then, when you came into a shul, there were only 55 synagogues that were allowed to, to function by the uh, atheistic regime for 3 million people. And how do you communicate to Jews who barely survived Hitler and Stalin? Their lives had been the older Jews there. They had sinned the worst of the worst. So, uh, but nonetheless, you know, Jews find a way to do SOS and communicate with each other. And uh, my my mentor and, and teacher, uh, Dr. Joel Walowalski, who had been, I was there over Sukkis, but he had been there over Pesach. It was in Kiev. And he had exactly the same problem. Who do you trust when they can all be KGB agents? So when they were putting the Sefer Torah back, and it came to exactly this paragraph, an elderly gentleman, I didn't look to him straight in the eye, kind of shuffled over next to him, but he lined himself up with the president of the shul and said the following, Listen carefully. When you're learning Torah, you have to make sure each word counts. In this particular case, when this ancient Jew who had, was too scared to speak face-to-face with a Western Jew, not even from Israel, but by leaving out that word emuna, he was signaling to these uh, young American Jews who not to trust. The So I'm relieved that in the introduction you were kind enough to include the word emuna. Um, I, I think it's always important when I have this wonderful opportunity to, to come to this base Madrash, Makam Torah, to share a couple of thoughts about David and Fellow Chappelle. Uh, I'm the Associate Dean of the Simon Wiesenthal Center based in Los Angeles. I uh, came with Rabbi Marvin Heyer to start the institution. That's a good way to get a job and to keep it 45 years. But among our earliest supporters, great benefactors for Klai Yisrael, this a really, truly amazing couple. Fella Chappelle is the quintessential lady. Uh, the way she carried herself, the way she spoke to people. Uh, it would take a lot for you to find out that she was actually born in the town of Auschwitz, that now is remembered by its German name, Auschwitz. There was a Jewish community before. And take even more to try to find out a little bit what she experienced during the Shoah. It it wasn't really a very successful attempt. David Chappelle, an amazing man, he, I came, I think comes under the category of Emor Ma'at Vasei Harbe. He measured his words. He's very, very quiet. And his achievements, including this wonderful yeshiva and places here and around the world, absolutely amazing. But those of us, I mean, my, I can feel David Chappelle's presence here. When you were with him, 
Uh, he can only sit for a little while. Even at board meetings, he used to get up and pace around. He didn't really have a lot of time for uh, for words. But when I was with David Chappelle, I felt that he had the burden of the world on his shoulders. He wasn't depressed. I think he was more angry. And I recall uh, a sunny day in Poland in the 80s when David Chappelle walked took me down a ravine in Vol- back in the back part of a town called Volbrum and retraced the steps where members of his family and most of the other Jews of that shtetl were taken to the bottom of the ravine, shot, murdered, and buried. He took me to that spot, and that experience also stayed with me. And... Kvotorov, you mentioned, it's also absolutely true. We can spend our whole lives reading, watching all of the documentaries. It's impossible, and maybe it should be that way, that for those of us who didn't experience it, we'll never really fully understand the full extent of what people went through, the victims. David Chappelle escaped, and he found his way to the Soviet army, And uh, to give you an idea of the scope of the battles between what was the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, approximately 20 million Soviets died in in the battles to push the Nazis back and eventually went all the way to Berlin. He told me one time that... um, After a while, he made it uh, a rule never to get to know the soldier to his right or to his left. He went out of his way not to communicate. Let's say at breakfast when you're getting your... He said, I wouldn't do it because we all knew that by nightfall, one, two, or all three of us wouldn't be around anymore. So the idea of creating relationships and friendships, they were fighting the beast, and he fought his way back across uh, Europe and helped defeat uh, the Nazis. That was the burden he carried on his shoulders of what he had experienced, first as a young man in his own hometown, what happened to the Jews, his family, and then... Uh, being literally in the midst of uh, uh, some of the worst uh, battles in the history of the world. So to see their wonderful names associated, Lador Daros, with uh, this beautiful yeshiva, uh, I know it was a very, very good investment that the Chappelles made, and I think everybody knows he was a very, very good investor when it came to business. So you had a good fiat iron. And um, I hope in some small way, some of the words that I'll share with you today will, uh, you know, hopefully inspire you to look a little bit more into these various uh, areas. So it's uh, difficult uh, to connect to those unspeakable horrors of the Nazi genocide as it recedes into the rearview mirror, might say the black hole of history of some 80 years ago. And we're losing whatever survivors we have, 
every day, the natural process. Um, we lose more and more of the, of the eyewitnesses to what happened, the victims who survived, the victimizers, the war criminals themselves. They're rapidly leaving the stage of uh, history. But I think as you've learned, and as you know, that for us Jews, it's actually never been about history. It's always been about memory. If you think about that difference, it's the difference between the statistics and the battles we had to memorize in high school or even college about history. But for us, it's always an issue of Zachor al Tishkach, remember and do not forget, and also Maasei Avot, Siman Lebanin, that what our forefathers went through, how they handled crises and tragedy, how they handled success are also guides to us. But, you know, as a look around the base Medrash, there's also another challenge right now for the 21st century Jews. And, um, you know, look where you're standing. Look where I'm standing. We're approaching the 75th anniversary of the sovereign state of Israel. We just had eight wonderful days of Hanukkah, I don't know if you yet took note of how many different types of sufganiyot you ingested and how many of them, but uh, it is that's also a challenge. But everything about Hanukkah and about Yerushalayim and about this country, besides the self-inflicted wounds of Sinat Chinam, is it's a young country again. It's unbelievably successful. It's surrounded by failed states from. Let's see, we can go as far away right now as Algeria, Libya, Egypt would fall in a minute, if not for $35 billion a year from Gulf states and the IMF to prop them up. Jordan, which even today just barred some people going across the Petra because the tzitzis were hanging out. They sent them back to the Israel side to tuck in their tzitzis or be uh, deported. Uh, let's see, Syria, Lebanon, and then in the midst of this unbelievable neighborhood, you have Eretz Israel. You have the just amazing uh, development, and um, it's pretty hard to explain it, I think, in any objective terms, with all due respect to the startup nation and all the rest of it. Clearly, it's Yad Hashem. But that means, that also means that that uh, a pasuk which you just read, and I did, from, from King David in Hallel over these last eight days, it hit me this just yesterday, we say it almost by rote, right in the first paragraph, Mikimi me'afardal, me'ashpot yarim evyon. I don't know, does anybody here feel like they're poor or that they, they live in a... They have to be saved from a garbage dump, garbage heap. I live in L.A., so we have plenty of homeless. Unfortunately, we can probably... But um, David Amelech, it's very interesting when he uses this term because he experienced the full fullness of life from tragedy to uh, to triumph. But we actually say it uh, in Hallel. And if you want to think about, I think, holistically at our history over the last hundred years... Do you know what where the Jewish people were at in May 1945? We were in the garbage heap of history. 
the the value of a Jewish life or death wasn't even didn't even merit merit a burial. They broke our bones, they killed our people, and we turned into ash. So it was the lowest possible place for a human being to be after being branded with a number. And May 1948, that's three years later, there's a sovereign Jewish state here, right here in Eretz Israel. I don't know if you've ever had someone who's a historian about Beit HaKerem. It'd be very interesting to learn a lot more details about some of the uh, challenges right here uh, in, uh, in 1948. Uh, and now, you know, we just complain if there's a traffic jam and it costs us another 10 shekel to get to, to Yeshiva. And one other amazing uh, fact, I hope it'll be a factoid, but a statistic, there was one study made that by 2045, there could be 20 million Jews in Eretz Israel. When I was a yeshiva bacher at Itri in 1968, the total population of this city, Jews and Arabs, was 177,000. Basically a shtetl. So the, it's very, very, very challenging to your generation to sort of like look back and be told that the Shoah, the Holocaust, is really important to uh, to learn and to understand and to take lessons from. Um, but I think in a time when, uh, you know, last month I was in uh, the UAE and Bahrain, so I was at Shabbos in Dubai. It's a quiet Shabbos, right? In one of the four minyanim in Dubai, there were a hundred Jews fressing on chult. In, in one of the four minyanim in the United Arab Emirates. Um, you can go to Bahrain, you can go to Morocco, the beginnings of, of real peace between some of the people in the Arab world, in the Muslim world, and the Jewish people is blossoming. So I think, you know, maybe polite, but the question really is, for our generation, we connected with our parents and grandparents and extended family, we met. We knew survivors and we met them. We felt a little bit of their pain. Baruch Hashem, we have new generations now. So what exactly, what are some of the areas that are really relevant to the 21st century Jew? So a couple of points, and I hope you can spend some time with questions and, and comments. Number one, pretty obvious that Jew hatred did not die with Hitler in the bunker when he uh, committed suicide in 1945 in Berlin. On uh, Thursday, we're going, the Lisenthal Center is going to have a press conference at the uh, uh, Jerusalem Press Club, and we're releasing our 2022 top 10 list of anti-Semites for the year. It's been a horrible year. We could have made it a top 100. Um, you know, points to ponder is uh, things are, are really beautiful here in, on a day-to-day basis, thank God. But points to ponder is when you have someone by the name of Kanye West who has 50 
million plus followers on adding up the different social media platforms. And he woke up uh, one day, maybe he had a psychotic episode, I don't know, I'm not a psychiatrist, but he has turned his full fury on Kal Yisrael. So he's been able to bring the message of Jew hatred to into the lives of tens of millions of people around the world. He's done such a good job that the white supremacists that we have in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Germany, um, they have um, applauded Kanye West, who happens to be a black rapper. They don't like blacks very much, but they make an exception in the case when he becomes a top-tier Jew hater. Secondly, uh, anti-Semitism now is coming at us from all sides. That means, of course, not-so-neo-Nazis, white supremacists on the extreme far right of the political spectrums, progressives, where you have a person like Linda Sarsour, a Palestinian-American, and she's a gatekeeper uh, for, I would say, what they consider to be the high moral ground uh, within the progressive world. And she has a very simple uh, rule. If you're Jewish and you want to be accepted into the progressive circles, you better park your Zionism and your Judaism outside. It doesn't. So you want to come in, you do it on our rules, or you be chutzlavachaneh. We have members of the United States Congress who are open anti-Semites. They're protected by the people who run their particular party. Uh, And then we have also uh, a direct result of the hatred of Hamas and the pay-to-slay rules of the Palestinian Authority. That hatred of Klal Yisrael has now uh, been exported into the streets of Germany uh, to um, the Jewish uh, neighborhoods of London, on Shavuos to uh, La Brea Avenue in Los Angeles, and scores of times in Williamsburg, Flatbush, and other Jewish areas where from Jews are beaten up because they're Jews and often beaten up by people who have been influenced by the non-stop attacks on the on legitimate Jewish uh, uh, people. And then, just to give you sort of the last uh, example of what just took place, we have now a new challenge. Probably happened before in Jewish history. This new challenge comes from a sect within the black Israelite movement in the United States. And what they hold is, no one in this room is a real Jew. The real Jews are the blacks, are indigenous uh, people, uh, and perhaps, and Latinos and some people from South America. They have a whole list of the 12 tribes. If you're looking for yourself in one of those, we are not real, we're not even real Jews. We're with the synagogue of Satan. It's an old quote from the New Testament that's been revitalized. And they ran a protest outside the Barclay Center 
in Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn, New York is, has the highest concentration of Jews in any city in the world. They came right out in the midst of that with a rally saying what Hitler did was right because he knew who the real Jews were. Never mind that Hitler would have gotten to the blacks and gotten rid of them also. The point is that this kind of hatred, which has always been on the outside, the chutzlamachaneh, on the outskirts of uh, society, are now beginning to permeate center stage, and especially in social media, with young people who have no filter, are absorbing this stuff. Um, Let me just give uh, two other areas for you to, to ponder. This past January was the 80th anniversary of the Vansay Conference. How many of you know what the Vansay Conference was? Okay. See a few, a few people. Okay. So, on January 20th, 1942, Vansay is a beautiful suburb of Berlin. And on one of the villas, right on the water, uh, used to belong to a Jew, uh, Heydrich, who was in charge of the final solution, he later on would be assassinated in Prague. But he called together 15 ministers of the German state, and they had one issue to discuss. The fastest, cheapest way to murder every single Jewish man, woman, and child in Europe. They served drinks. They met for 90 minutes. Now, who were these people? One of them you probably heard about, or perhaps heard about, was Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was the Jew expert. He actually visited Eretz Israel in 1937, and he was sort of the the main bureaucrat of the Shoah. The Israelis eventually tracked him down to Buenos Aires, brought him here, he was put on trial in the old Binyane HaUmah, which is right the entrance to Jerusalem, and uh, put on trial, convicted, and I think he's the only person ever executed under Israeli law, because generally they don't execute people here. So that was Eichmann, and in addition to Eichmann, there were uh, 14 other ministers. Of them, Eight had PhDs. Eight. One of them uh, actually had a uh, scholar- had previously had a scholarship with the Rockefeller Institute in the United States. So these were the brightest, uh, the smartest, I guess, the most uh, intellectually endowed people. And actually, Heydrich spoke to Eichmann before the meeting and said, "I'm very worried." I see that eight of the people here have doctorates. What happens when it comes to vote? We could lose. Because we're talking about the eradication of of an entire people. Ninety minutes later, the vote was 15 to zero to murder every Jew. They started talking about uh, gassing and etc. The fastest, most economic way because a bullet was too expensive to use. So here is one 
rule you should carry with you throughout your life, whether you're in chinuch or education, whether you're going back to finish yourself, advanced studies, university, never, ever allow anyone to tell you that there is an automatic connection between academic excellence and ethics. They are not necessarily connected. If anything, you look today in China and other places, when you have brilliant people who sign on and sign up to be part of the system that dehumanizes people, you need the best minds in order to create the systems, in order to create the narrative that the people out there would come to accept. You need to be able to draft individuals with the highest IQs, that maybe you can take soldiers who have lower ones to do the dirty work. But when you talk about the Nazi Holocaust, this was planned and confirmed and executed by the people who represented the highest academic achievements. And in 90 minutes, they decided to eliminate an entire people. I think the that issue of education academia and ethics is something that is front and center to our lives today. And if it isn't, you may want to reconsider and think about it as well. Among the first uh, people who embraced the Nazi ideology and became members of the Nazi party in the 1930s were physicians, doctors. And one of the reasons... Some of these people were uh, attracted to the Nazi ideology is because it offered them the possibility of doing research without having to worry about small issues like morality, like using live human beings without giving them anesthetic and doing all sorts of of horrific experiments in the name of progress. So... The Nazi ideology, or the Soviet ideology, was a liberating one if you were ready to give up the fundamentals of ethics. In other words, the exact opposite of most of us, the way we've been brought up, and certainly what you learn in yeshiva, this was the exact um, uh, opposite. Now think about, of course you've probably heard of Mengele and some of the other uh, experiments. The Japanese were doing the same uh, over the other, their their partners in Asia, uh, using uh, live soldiers, POWs, Chinese civilians, and others, uh, in order to create uh, a corpus of knowledge uh, that um, some people and some governments use even today. Here's a question for you: Should we be using the results of those experiments? It's a tough question. You know, save somebody's life? Where do you draw the line on ethics? Um, I guess eventually, after this plague leaves the world, I hope it'll be soon, we talk about COVID-19 and the decisions that were made uh, in terms of creating medicines and et cetera, and how to get there and what, what information do you share. Um, I think we've discovered in the 21st century that you know when it comes to ethics, or lack thereof, it's a slippery slope. It can go pretty quickly. So there's a relevance there as well for people who are going into uh, 
into the arenas of uh, research. Some places, some universities, put a premium on making sure that the ethical issues are at least raised while you're being trained, but a lot of places don't. So if you're looking for knowledge in, in pursuit of your life's career, uh, I'm not... I'm certainly not in favor of telling people not to go to university or get the highest possible degree, but we need to do so with our eyes open, and we need to be empowered with our own uh, values from the Torah and unafraid to apply them in our lives as we go forward. I think that we owe, uh, we owe the previous generations, including the six million, that much that we're, we live in freedom, we have that knowledge, you're going to meet people, I'm not saying they're Nazis or evil or anything else, but they may not have any of these fundamentals been brought to their attention in their own education. Sometimes you'll find yourself to be a lonely voice, but if you're an informed one, you can bring a Kiddush Hashem to the world um, in, in many of these uh, uh, situations and settings. Just a few more uh, points. I was with uh, Simon Wiesenthal of Blessed Memory, and actually, I'm going to pause here for a second, and please be honest with me. How many of you never heard of Simon Wiesenthal? Thank you. It's important to know. I I found that a couple years ago at at a high school, Jewish high school, in the tri-state area, I'm not going to let you figure out which. There were 12-year-old kids, and I we asked. Three kids knew who Simon Wiesenthal was, and that was 10 years ago. So Simon Wiesenthal was um, an Eastern European Jew, born in a town called Buchach, uh not far from a place called Lvov or Lemberg today, so be in the Ukraine. And... Uh, he grew up between, uh, you know, during World War One. He was an architect student uh, who was um, not allowed to apply to some of the better schools because there was a quota system in Europe for Jews. Married his childhood sweetheart, became an architect, actually designed two or three houses, and then World War Two broke out. When it was over, uh, his wife had been hidden by righteous uh, Gentiles. He had gone through uh, five camps. When he was liberated in May 1945 by U.S. soldiers, he was too weak to stand. He weighed uh, 90 pounds. And between the two of them, they lost 89 members of their family. So just wiped out. Uh, Unlike most of the other survivors, you might say that Simon Wiesenthal never left the Shoah because he felt, um, I think, a sense of guilt that so many of his family had perished and felt an achrayas to do something about it. So he became the Nazi hunter and worked to bring uh, these murderers to trial, not to a gun, but to trial. He felt that every trial, however it came out, would be a warning to future generations and felt also that the Nazis almost destroyed the basic concepts of justice and he wanted to uh, repair that. So... I was with him in uh, 1980. He was in the Midwest of the United States with one of the universities, I think in uh, near in Ohio. 
And uh, two questions, great questions, from students. First one was, Mr. Wiesenthal, could it happen again? Listen to what he said in 1980. It's a couple of decades before anybody thought of uh, the Internet. He said, well, if you have a crisis, you have organized hate, and you have technology, anything is possible. Now, what he meant by technology was from the 1930s, you had Hitler on the radio, you had the beginnings of propaganda, they made these books for kids, color books, even games, that were dehumanizing the Jews. By today's standards, complete child's play. But Mr. Wiesenthal said, if that technology had been available in 1492, said no Jew would have survived in Spain, no Catholic would have survived in England, and no Protestant would have survived in France. And come down to our contemporary situation here today in the world in which uh, everything local is global and vice versa, uh, in which uh, you know the Chinese government has a zero policy right on COVID uh, and locks up hundreds of millions of people and then one day decides, well, that's not working. So now you've got potentially millions of Chinese are going to die because they didn't do the thing right uh, to, to begin with. So we have uh, the Internet. We have Michigan like Kanye West, who knows from nothing, but is able to be a sounding board uh, for genocidal hate. We have uh, regimes like the Iranian regime, which Shoah denial is actually state policy. Uh, it, it probably, by the standards of 1980, Mr. Wiesenthal would be sounding uh, five alarms right now. And he would say it, it doesn't mean that the next victim necessarily is going to be a Jew or that the perpetrator is going to be wearing a swastika, just that the dynamics are there. And then he said what the, the next question was also uh, phenomenal. It's also relevant to the leaders who are here today because each of you is a leader already. And he was asked, were you surprised by how many Nazis there were in the world? And he said, no, I wasn't at all surprised by how many Nazis there were. I was only surprised by how few anti-Nazis there were. Again, in my work, at least in this particular arena of anti-Semitism, um, one of the reasons why you know, I travel as much as I do, and I'm, I'm looking for normals. I'm looking for people in different societies, cultures, religions that have a, uh, I would say, the people who are mentioned and, and have some basic values uh, because we need to create, we need new friends, we need new alliances. We can't defeat anti-Semitism on our own. We can debate how much time and in what way do we reach out beyond our community um, I'm not saying we, we have to run all over the world, but everybody has the opportunity as you go and, and uh, make your mark. We need to be able to explain to our neighbors why Jews in Toronto care about Jews in Tel Aviv. Uh, we need to explain um, why we're proud to be Jews, what the Torah teaches us uh, about issues. There is a profound curiosity 
when you go to places like India, Japan, China, uh, and even in Africa, places where there aren't many Jews, I can't explain why. Why would anybody in India care? Bechlau, what Jews have to say about anything? Got almost two billion people and just a handful of Jews. There is a profound curiosity about Judaism. So here's here's the score. Either you become the ambassador to explain your values, or you could leave it to the black Israelites who call you a fraud, or I'll leave it to the Ayatollah Khomeini who says, Jews? They've made up the whole show so they can get money from Germany. So today, you don't really have much of a choice. If you shave Altasa, we have a lineup of enemies ready to fill that void. So that means that the ultimate Achrayut is, is on us. It doesn't mean you have to focus on the negative. Um, but it also means we have great potential that when I was studying in Yeshiva, never even had a Havamin about it, to think that we the potential reach of Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noah, the potential reach for Kiddush Hashem when you interact with the world, today is unparalleled. It's the same technology that threatens us can also be harnessed uh, for for good things. And um, I would just say it's so interesting in meeting um, uh, Arab uh, Arabs and, and Muslims around the world. I remember uh, after the terrible terrorist attack in Bali, Indonesia, where I think 200 people were killed. Most of them were Australian tourists. So we did a multi-faith program there. And in the afternoon before the event was going to to, uh, happen with Muslims and Hindus, and we had a Holocaust survivor, Sal Teichman, said Sal spoke, became the first and only survivor of the Holocaust, as far as I know, whose speech was translated into Arabic and broadcast on satellite all over the world. So, um, it was, uh, by the way, if you haven't been to Bali yet, it's basically Gan Eden. It's the most gorgeous place in the world. So I I said, uh, it was like 3.30 in the afternoon, I said, I need a 10-minute break. Okay, well, why do you need a break? I said, well, we have to, you know, I'm going to say Mincha prayer. This guy was a Muslim. He looked at me, incredulous. He said, Jews pray? He didn't mean it bad, bad. He, you know, he just didn't know. Now, Indonesia is the world's largest Muslim country. And I was later on uh, on an interfaith program, a roundtable. It went very, very nicely. All sorts of interesting folks there. Uh, until the middle of the program, the, the host turned to me in all innocence and said, Rabbi, please, can you tell us what does the Torah say about the Quran? <laughs> this is live television and there are probably a couple of tens of millions of people watching. It's a good Shiloh, you no? Know? <laughs> so I said uh, as quietly uh, as I could, said, you know, what's really interesting, we have, in, the, or in this round table, we have four Muslims, a Christian, and a Jew. 
And that means that we all believe that God gave the Ten Commandments once in history to all of us. Adding, and so you see, Judaism preceded Islam. This was a Chiddush so profound and so controversial that uh, our host immediately pivoted you know, to less controversial area like uh, Palestinian refugees. That was, that was, that was pretty easy. But in a, on a, a base, more fundamental level, because none of us were, was ready for this, and that's the other thing. Whenever you hear the term expert, be very misopic on any area. But what's so unbelievable, how fast it happened, When I was growing up in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm a product of Yeshiva Day School, I learned here in in Itri Yeshiva, I I had my speech from Yeshiva University, and obviously these areas, Soviet Jewry and other social issues, are very important to me. Everyone that you saw in positions of power and uh, responsibility, or many, many Jews, with the exception of a young guy by the name of Malcolm Holmline, um, Nobody wore yarmulke. These were not people who kept kosher, Shabbos. That was their area that they would represent the Jewish concerns in Washington and to the president and if there have to be a press conference. The idea that people who had Torah values would, would be in the mix of Jewish leadership was essentially unheard of. Um, and and uh, in terms of American Jewry, uh, they didn't like being told by from people uh, what to do or how to do it. And they basically said, you know, you're religious, it's fine, you go do your thing, but this is the big leagues, and it's not it's not for you. So now in in 2022, 2023, a very interesting reality, and that is, you meet from. Muslims who were in positions of power. You meet Hindus who have, shall we say, generally a relaxed definition of monotheism. You meet people of other faiths and they want to know what your values are. A Muslim leader who may not like you and you may not get anything out of the meeting, the idea that you pray, that you make a bracha before you eat, that shrita is like hala. For them, it relaxes them in the conversation. They, the people they less comfortable with are secular folks. So whether you know it or not yet, whether you've experienced it yet, whether you even care about it, the truth is that the more uh, Jewish muscle you bring to the table, of course, in, hopefully in done with great Derech Eretz, Today, that's a huge plus. And I say this, you know, probably I'm the, also the, the vice chair of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. What they used to do to the Jews, they now are doing to religious minorities all over the world. We look at 27 countries and nine commissioners. It's a, an official government uh, policy. Uh, right now, I'm scheduled uh, in, in mid-February to spend four days in Saudi Arabia as the vice chair. Okay. They're most comfortable with the rabbi who wears a yarmulke and keeps kosher 
even though there's another uh, rabbi from, who is heading up a gay congregation in New York, and she's a very nice person, they're not very comfortable with her. They're more comfortable with the person who shomer mitzvahs. I mean, it's just a, it's a fascinating world out there. So I'm just reporting to you as you're making your decisions going forward that anyone who tells you, coming back to Linda Sarsa, you want to make a mark and do good in the world, uh, here's where you sign up for the equity, and here are the rules of the game. You're welcome to come in. You could be the tipping point for Jews for justice in Palestine, who say Kaddish for Palestinian terrorists from Hamas in, in Gaza. You can be our useful Jewish idiots if you want, but don't you dare bring your Jewish values along because they're not kosher anymore. So I must say, just before I close, that I give credit because many, many um, uh, Jews who have those values have not shied away and have fought to make sure that they can pursue social justice um, because there's a lot of injustice out there that needs to be fought against, but without giving up, refusing to give up their, their Jewish identity. These are all live wire issues for those of you who are going back to university campuses, Harvard, Yale, USC, UCLA, University of Chicago, Duke, Florida State University, CUNY, Brooklyn College, you name it. There's a lot of service on those campuses. So we need you to go back when you do go back, if you have to, if you choose to go. Okay. Uh, silence is not a, an option. If you learn one thing from the Shoah, uh, if never again is to mean anything, you have to carry that banner forward. That's your generation's, um, I think, credo. And uh, the good news is we now have a strong state here. We have to make sure that state also reflects the strong Jewish values, not just the military might. If you combine that, then... Um, you know, Mir Hashem, the arc of Jewish history will continue to go in the right direction. Well, I'm happy to take a few questions. Okay, we'll have maybe five minutes, five, six minutes of questions if anybody has. Yes, go ahead, John. Uh, Rabbi, do you see any parallels between America now and pre-Nazi Germany? So, I mean, if you're asking me, um, I would say not yet, because... Another thing that Mr. Wiesenthal said, which is so true, he said, remember, where democracy is strong, it's good for Jews, and where it's weak, it's bad for Jews. The, the German state, uh, the, uh, the Weimar Republic, which came you know, after World War I and the defeat, etc., was never accused of being a strong democracy. So we have different, we have different traditions, um, but you're seeing an assault on the United States and you know in terms of uh, you know attack on the family uh, attack, uh, attack on the fundamentals of justice supposed if you have a crime you should be held accountable now they, they let you right out afterwards there are a lot of different kinds of troubling signs and then again as Mr. Weasel cautioned 
think about when you have that communication capability. So it's not even a matter necessarily of what the state does. It's a matter of whether or not the state is equipped or strong enough to push back against uh, bigotry. So I would say at this point, uh, not yet. But I think if it's just a matter of sitting back and waiting for someone else to take care of these issues, you know, I, I would I, I'm not uh, I would not say that we're automatically guaranteed because you know we had Benjamin Franklin and the Great Declaration of Independence and Constitution. You you have to be committed to uh, uh, to make sure that a democracy works. And there are there are a lot of chinks in that in that armor. But having said that, I would just say, and also two or three of my daughters live here in Yerushalayim, and now thank God, you know, grandchildren and all the rest. If a young person has the option to live here, or if you're choosing a university and you can, uh, you know, do that work here in Israel, and maybe go for your graduate school back wherever you had in mind. I would say that uh, I would maximize my time here. There's no mitzvah to jump into an Ivy League school that, whose administration refuses refuses to show their heritage to you or to you because you're a Jew and allows the hate crimes to go unanswered, etc. So I think the objective answer is not yet and hopefully never, but there are no guarantees, and you know we have a concept called galut which is the AAA, and then you have the major leagues, which happens to be the capital of which is right here in Yerushalayim. So if you have that option personally, and you can you can uh, make that option, be a great thing to do. But hopefully do it for the positive, not the negative. Yes. Yes, sir. Um, how in your work, how do you see the um, interplay between those who obviously are on, on the other side of the argument, uh, who use this um, distinction between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. How do you see that playing out? I know in the UK it was a very, very big issue over the last few years. Yeah, yeah it, it was a big issue in the UK and a very convenient sort of smokescreen. And there may be, you know, perhaps someone who's locked away in a dusty room in Oxford and has never, you know, walked outside who can, you know, split the hair there. But here's the bottom line. The single largest Jewish community today in the world is right here in the state of Israel. So somewhere around 7 million, soon to be 7 million Jews. It's the largest Jewish community. So let's say uh, you don't like Zionism, and you say you're not an anti-Semite, but uh, you don't think that Zionists have a right to live here because they're Nazis or whatever it is that they're doing. Uh, that pretty much smacks of Jew hatred. Secondly, in terms of the values, the fundamentals of Yiddishkeit, we just have mincha, open up Yisidur to write to the prayer. So, uh, and I think that's also another thing uh, going forward. It, it always energizes me. I always am astonished how anti-Semites want the right to define what anti-Semitism is. So, not the victim, God forbid, but the victimizer. Uh, and I would just say one other thing. The, the greatest challenge is for us Jews to convince our young people and our neighbor, Jewish neighbors 
why anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. That's the first, the most important, and I would say the following, just one other thing about the UK, because, you know, there was a reason for the Boston Tea Party. I'm an American, so I don't claim uh, objectivity, but I look at what British Jewry has done in the last five years, especially with Corbyn, to stand up united with all the profound differences within the community, including religiously, they stood up, uh, you know, to that nasty piece of work and helped defeat him. Uh, that shows, I think it should show first to us Jews, that when, when Jewish people, whatever their differences, can at least agree on the basics, when you see what's coming at you, we're an amazingly powerful force. What the enemies are trying to do every which way is to use semantics in order to divide. And frankly, before Corbyn, they were quite successful in the UK. And it's still uh, a hot wire, a hot button issue uh, on campuses in the United States. But mostly it's now, it's a propaganda uh, a ploy. But there is an area that, I, that does trouble me deeply. Uh, and I'm no fan I'm not a taxpayer here officially in Israel. I only have eight eight grandchildren, so I guess I am a taxpayer, but not officially. I don't vote here. Uh, I'm not a big fan of, you know, some of the people who are going to be running this government uh, in Israel. You have to, you know, hope for the best. But, um, you know, Israel is not the 51st state of the United States of America. It's its own messy democracy. Uh, and when people sh- scream and shout about, you know, Israel should do this, that, and the other thing, um, I think we have to do our best uh, to defend Israel. But 300 rabbis in the United States have just signed a joint letter that they will refuse to allow any representative of this new Israeli government doesn't get sworn in till Thursday to come and speak in their communities. Now, those communities all have federations, they have large sums of money. Um, I actually think it kind of smacks of BDS that we turn the gun and shoot ourselves. So uh, I think we have to do two things. Show Derek Eretz who re- with people who have profound differences within our community, respect those differences, try to get them to an over to, uh, our side. But the idea that you would uh, adopt language or tactics that would weaken uh, Israel's capabilities is still, you live in a pretty tough neighborhood here. Uh, every day, there are carbon out. I think that that is uh, insufferable and it has to be fought. But that just gives us an example of, of uh, how precarious our situation is, only made more so when Jews want to be more clever than the next. And one last thing, I, uh, I made the mistake of starting to look at some of the tweets of the Israeli politicians here, back and forth, I would send them back to kindergarten and wipe out their, you know, wash their mouths out with soap. Hashem, just across the board. These are adults who who want the people in the diaspora to stand up for them, and uh, people tend to forget. You know, when you do something on Twitter, a couple of hundred million people can be reading it. So. You know, I, that, that's my only editorial comment is that uh, there, there's a lot of juvenile behavior 
And I would just say one thing. I'm not going to suggest that the uh, the Rosh Yeshiva deal with it, but I saw that a from member of Knesset said the other day that doctors should not have to treat someone who's gay if they choose not to. I don't think that's halakhically a uh, sustainable uh, approach. Someone come and need, needs help, you have to take care of them. The next thing you'll find that some other doctors, some doctors will say, I don't want to treat people who put on fillin in the morning. It affects their blood pressure uh, or whatever. So we have to, you know, you're doing the right thing with your lives right now. You're, you're you know, filling up with, with vitamins of Torah. And the real world out there, you have to also navigate um, how to make sure that what you do, how you say and how you behave is said, Kiddush Hashem, not a Phil Hashem. One more? Before the last question, I just realized that um, everywhere that Rabbi, that, uh, Rabbi Binyamin Wolf goes with, his, with uh, Rabbi Cooper, so he is introduced as the son-in-law of Rabbi Cooper. But in this base, Medrash, you guys may not know that Rabbi Cooper is the father-in-law of Rabbi Wolf. Well, more that's, import- that's more importantly, Rabbi Wolf is lucky enough to have been the father of my eight grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so the great, great question. It is the question, really, of the day when you when you go back. And I, I would just say a, a couple of things. Number one, what if nobody says anything? Then they win, and they you are now defined by those bigots and racists, and some of whom will go trace right back to Hamas. So, um, and these are also future leaders. If people are going to see that Jews don't stand up for themselves then maybe they are liars. Maybe there wasn't a Shoah. Maybe Israelis are treating Palestinians the way Germans treated the Jews. All of these tropes that are out there. So, and we just had Hanukkah. And Hanukkah, you had one family of Kohanim, no less, who said, we're not going to take this. And they fought, they fought back. I'm not talking about picking up a gun, because then for sure, if you're in the cause, you have to do that. It's time, it's time to move. But exercising your rights... Having um, the facts at hand, uh, and then demanding uh, that your rights be protected. So the only thing I can say is, you, I, I can't guarantee that we can help. But if you're there and you need help, you call me up, and we'll find some way to make sure that uh, you're not going to be standing alone. But um, look, in the Galut, Jews are minorities. Um, we have many Jews in academia in the upper echelons who are sellouts, and they just take you know whatever it is that uh, the woke uh, system tells them to do, and they follow it, including people who head up Jewish um, studies programs. It, it's a terrible thing to have to say, but it's the truth. But we're going to have to count on uh, young people who have uh, the wherewithal to defend themselves Jewishly. And to do so in a way that if nothing else, you're going to have other young Jews saying, well, I don't agree with everything you said, but I want to uh, learn more. And just to finish on, on one note, 
Um, I don't remember which God said it, but uh, there is a Gemara that says that uh, we come before the best in Shamala, the Beit in Shamala, twice. Once when we die, and the second time just before Triatamitim, before the resurrection of the dead. I think it was Rav Hutton. Why? You, if someone passed away, let's say, 500 years ago, and the Shaman's already up, they have to, what is going to happen in the Besdin right before the resurrection of the dead? And the answer is because we, until the very end of history, you can't fully analyze the impact of every deed that you did while you were alive. So the ripple of every mitzvah that you do the good news is that's going to accrue in ways that you have absolutely no idea. You probably wouldn't even remember the incident that took place. But Chazal are telling us that you know when you stand up and you do a Kiddush Hashem, the long-lasting effects of those acts will go on literally until the end of history. Something to consider. And the, when it's Shev Al-Taseh, we're letting others... Uh, to um, dictate who we are, that's a prescription, I think, for oblivion for our future, in, in, in the, certainly in the government. Okay.